Last week, we kicked off Moments in Matthew. I joked with y'all about that it's not just storytelling by, by Pastor Matthew. It's literally God's Word. And this, and this morning, or last week, we looked at the nativity, how he came to us. We saw his supernatural birth. We saw his supernatural uh, work, uh, saw his supernatural presence, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And this week, this week, we continue on in our series as we look at the next significant moment in Matthew, and that is the baptism of Jesus. But before we just jump into the text that uh, Natalie just read, I I think we need to take a minute here and look at all of chapter 3, which is only 17 verses. Don't worry. It's family worship gathering. I don't have 50 minutes ahead of you, unless the Spirit's leading. I I can't promise that, but uh, it should be fairly quick. So stick with me. We're going to have some fun this morning. All right, a little bit interactive. Uh, let's see and let's trust the Spirit would be at work. Amen? Let's do that as we dig into God's Word. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 should be on the screen behind me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. Did you hear that, children? John the Baptist had a camel hair leather, uh, camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. That's what he ate. Tasty, exactly. Then people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him. In the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John the Baptist, who is he and what is happening here? Well, John the Baptist was a prophet who was preaching a very powerful message. And so we're clear, we see Matthew here is, is giving us a bit of a history lesson. He's connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. And here's what I mean. John's message, according to Matthew, is quoting Isaiah 40 that says this, A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. You see, John played a unique role as he was the one fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. John literally was the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for Jesus. And he was preaching a powerful message of repentance And Matthew, he gives us this unique description of John in verse 4, and I'm not for sure why, but I love it. Again, he says, John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, this dude didn't have much, and and here's, here's why I know that. Scripture tells us he was a desert dweller living in the wilderness of Judea. Matthew wanted his readers here. This is why it's important. It's in the Word of God. It's always important if it's in the Word of God. But specifically, Matthew wanted his readers to sense what type of man John the Baptist was because it had an impact on his message. He wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And I'm going to assume he probably hung out at REI and did CrossFit, right? Like, I don't know why, but there's just something about a man wearing camel hair and a leather belt, baptizing people in a dirty river, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Like, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he could hold his own, all right? 
simple lifestyle, simple diet, a simple wardrobe. He didn't have a life full of extravagance, and he didn't desire anything extravagant. Some might assume that he was a poor man because of such a simplistic lifestyle, but look at verse 5 and 6. Why do I go into that? Look at verse 5 and 6. People were coming from all over. They were coming from Jerusalem, Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan River. Coming to the desert for what? To confess their sin and be washed clean in a dirty river by a man dressed in camel hair. Like surely, family, we can all agree that it wasn't the man that was drawing this crowd, right? It wasn't the man. So what was it? What drew people from all over? Why were people coming to the river? Well, we know, we know this. John was a man who feasted on the Word of God because he based his entire life on it. Out of humility and absolute obedience, John set the tone of submitting to the Father, preparing the way of the Son, and proclaiming it in the power of the Spirit. He knew the truth, church, and that's all he needed. A message of repentance for what? Preparing the way for Christ. A message that was about to change the world forever. A message of repentance. Now, no doubt, this is the message the world needs, right? You hear that and you're like, yes, this is what our world needs. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. But it is also the message that the church needs every day. This is why the theme of repentance is found all throughout the letters of the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament Christians who have repented must continue to live a life of repentance. So, Christian, what what message are you proclaiming? John, in this simplistic life that he lived, was proclaiming a bold message. What message are you proclaiming? And we live in a culture that is just filled of Instagram filters. It's a lifeless message that we post that looks great on the outside, right? Put whatever filter you want on and it looks great, but you can't even breathe on the inside because you're wrestling with shame and doubt and guilt and drowning in self-pity. And you can't take your eyes off of yourself. Is that the message that you're proclaiming to a lost world that needs to hear the message of repent, the kingdom of, of heaven is near? Or are you proclaiming a simple message that boasts in the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus? You see, the, pe the reason people were coming to John the Baptist wasn't because he was some good-looking dude who did CrossFit or had everything he needed to look good on the outside. It was because his heart of repentance lined up with a life of repentance. So it made sense, of course it made sense, that the message he was proclaiming was life-changing to others because it radically changed his own life. Verse 7 through 12, we see his message expounded on a little bit more. Let's pick up in verse 7. In case that was not enough, here we go. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who's coming after me, yes, he is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Wow, what a powerful, powerful message. And essentially accusation here that we're going to go through, but this is huge. This is, it has massive implications, and here's why. John's message is centered on repentance, and it all points not to ourselves, but it points to the work of Christ who is about to show up on the scene. It's all pointing to the work of Christ. Here's why this is so huge. Look at Kent Hughes in Preaching the Word says this, John, John the Baptist, has moved God's people track with me, away from Jerusalem's temple to grant the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Everything that they've known, John now moves them away from the temple to grant them forgiveness of sins in Jesus. So of course, of course the religious leaders were going to come and see these baptisms taking place, right? They wanted to see what was happening? What was taking place? Because outside of the temple, people were having their lives, their sin forgiven, and their lives being made clean. What in the world? Why? Why is this taking place outside of the temple? They didn't like it. They didn't like it because it took away from their religious gain and their influence over their people. And chances are, a lot of these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these religious leaders, had probably even received baptism. But it's very doubtful that they had truly repented. Some of you are thinking, wow, that's, that seems a bit harsh. You don't know their heart. I don't. I don't, but I'm just sharing Matthew's narrative here and how he records John is pretty straightforward. You brood of vipers. Not my words. John the Baptist, Gospel of Matthew. Hear me on this. John takes advantage of the opportunity to call them. He calls them out on their false sense of security that they felt that they had. Meaning, John was shaking everything up. Everything that they had known, he is shaking everything up. This goes against all that they had come to even practice. He was confronting the religious rulers with all of their hypocrisy. They would claim one thing, that they were repentant, but their lives continually reflected another. They would claim one thing to be repentant, but their lives continually reflected another. You can't just... You can't just Michael Scott this, right? Like you can't just declare bankruptcy. You can't just declare repentance. It doesn't work like that. Nor can you just declare genuine repentance. It does not work. John says produce fruit consistent with repentance. 
You see, the religious leaders, they assumed that their righteousness was based on the works of their fathers. One commentary says it like this. The religious leaders assumed they were hereditarily holy. That is, that their identification by blood with Abraham automatically brought them under the safety of God's covenant. John simply pointed out that their mere Jewishness or nationality was not enough to make a person a true follower of God. In fact, he claimed that these hypocrites had no more in common with God's people than a rock does. Now, I've, I've uh, used the word repent a ton this morning. Talked a lot about it. I've wrestled a little bit on even where to like put this in. Where, how should I define it? Because I, I never want to assume that, that we all understand what repentance is. I, I've intentionally waited to define it right now in this section because I, I think it's important that we see how John has called people to repentance Right? He's called people to repentance, and then he's essentially called people out for a sense of false repentance. He's called them to, and then he's called people out, saying, man, I, I don't see the fruit in your life with this. Now, I'm not here to call anybody a brood of vipers. There's children present. Just joking. Uh, I wouldn't do it even if the children were in their classes. I'm not going to call you a brood of vipers, but I certainly want us to call, I want us to call each of us to repentance. When we hear the word of God, there should be a response from us, and the response should be a heart of obedience and repentance. And here's what repentance is not. Let me define it by saying this is what it's not. It's not declaring you've repented based on your own heritage. Like your, your parents' faith doesn't save you, just like it didn't with the religious leaders. The wisdom of their fathers, the, the repentance of their fathers didn't save them. Repentance is not feeling bad about something because we think God is mad at us. Like, well, woe was me. Like, I, I really just really did this again. I screwed this up. I can't believe I let God down again. It's not feeling bad about something because we think God's mad at us. It's not trying to dissect sin and understand it completely. That's just the way I am. I'm a wing or an eight, wing three, or whatever the Enneagram thing is, or, or whatever personality test. I don't even know if that's a thing. Eight three whatever, um, but it's not trying to dissect that with well this is just who I am. It's not trying to stop a behavior without addressing the heart issue behind it. I'll just put an internet filter on my phone and that will solve everything. No, getting to the root of the heart issue will solve everything by allowing Jesus to penetrate your heart and coming before Him. Like all of these things that I just said are focused on our own efforts. They're based on our own righteousness out of our own strength. And they'll all just leave you frustrated and tired and you're going to end up wrestling with more shame and more guilt and you're going to keep your eyes focused inwardly on yourself. I can do this. I, I, I can change. I can do this. Genuine repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. So here is what repentance is. It is rejecting sin and turning to God's transforming love. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. 
rejecting sin and turning towards God's transforming love. Repentance is turning away from sin and self and to the gospel and God. His kindness, Romans 2, leads you to repentance. Repentance is turning from a commitment to sin and turning towards a commitment to God's kingdom. Repentance is turning to God in a way that affects our lives deeply. What John says in verse 8, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Your life should reflect this. There should be noticeable change taking place. Repentance is running to God with our shame or guilt rather than running away. 2 Peter 3, for he is patient, not wanting you to perish, but all come to repentance. The only way to experience genuine repentance, family, is to rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're tired of wrestling with your sin, if you're tired of wrestling with your shame or with your guilt of all of your failures, can I just ask you, plead with you, beg you, I'm heralding the good news to you this morning, the gospel. Would you hear the word and and would you respond to it? Romans 10, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. Hear me. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the good news of the gospel, friends. Repent and turn to Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, repent and turn to Jesus. Children, repent and turn to Jesus. Now we come to our text which is the actual baptism of Jesus. As we read it, I want us to see the beauty of this. We see a Trinitarian God present. Father, the Son, and the Spirit present here. And I love it. Look at verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you'll come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now. Because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Trinitarian God displayed in all beauty, we see first that the Son obeys, right? Jesus shows up here clearly on the scene, and he desires to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, as I mentioned earlier, John was a man full of humility, and we see that again in verse 14. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Just a few verses prior to that, Jesus, uh, John says that the one coming is mightier than I. Like, he, he understood 
what was taking place. John did. He knew what, who this man was and what this meant. And he was directing everybody's eyes past himself into the coming Savior, to the coming King. Now, Jesus, we've got, we got to acknowledge this, being baptized is a big deal. Like, why did he need to be baptized if he had never sinned? To help me address this, I'm, I'm going to lean on Tony Morita. Uh, he says this, Jesus had no need to renounce himself and no sin to repent of. That's exactly why he responds, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism is an identification with sinners. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us that he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. We identify with Christ when we are baptized being united to him in his life, death, and resurrection. And this is why this is in a very real sense how he identifies with us. Like, do you see the obedience of the son and how he truly identifies with us Christians? Not only that, he sets the example for us. He modeled obedience for all of his followers by what? By being baptized, Like this righteousness was now fulfilled in and through the life, the example of Jesus Christ. This is something you or I could never fulfill. Not even John the Baptist, as good of a man that even Christ said he was, could fulfill all the righteousness that would be required. Jesus came to us. He joined this fallen humanity And he provided all of our righteousness by sharing in our baptism. What a beautiful picture. So that's why why when we dunk people in the booth, we say that they're united to him in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So of course, right? Of course, we're going to party. We're going to throw a huge baptism celebration because what a testimony to the power of Uh, to boldly proclaim that people have been buried with Christ and raised in the newness with Jesus Christ. I'm going to pull a Rick. Somebody say hallelujah about that, right? Like hallelujah, that he buries us in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life with Christ. That's good news. Marita then goes on and he he says this, the son now begins his ministry by showing what would be central to our mission, church, brothers and sisters. His baptism is the picture of salvation. His immersion portrays his future death and his resurrection. The son obeys. Beautiful picture. Then we see the spirit anoint. Look at verse 16. We see the public display of the Spirit coming on Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. What a scene, right? What a scene this would have been. And I'm not certain about any of it except for what we see in the text. There's a visible manifestation of the Spirit here. God was revealing himself to them. And according to our text from last week, we know that the, you're kind of confused of why was the Spirit coming down. We know that the Spirit was already present with Christ prior to this text. 
D.A. Carson says, this outpouring does not change Jesus' status or assign him new rights. Rather, it identifies him as the promised servant and son, and it marks, hear me, the beginning of his public ministry and direct confrontation with Satan himself. It's a big deal. Public proclamation of what God has done in our life when we get dunked in a huge implication when Jesus identifies with us rebels and is baptized. Direct confrontation with Satan. The Spirit, the Son obeys. The Spirit anoints the Son. And then we see the Father speak. Verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Again, what a... What a beautiful scene this must have been to see the Son obey, the Spirit anoint, and now God delighting in His Son. It's nothing new. We see this all throughout the Bible, right? Jesus is God's beloved Son. He is the promised King to come from God, and He has gloriously crowned that. Isaiah 42, 1 says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. And this same, the same son is also the servant who would be pierced because of our transgressions and crushed because of my iniquities, your iniquities. Jesus is the humble, suffering servant in whom God delights in and declares our righteousness now. Jesus is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased with. Can I tell you some good news, Christian? When you are united with Christ and all of his righteousness, the father looks on you, he sees his son and he is pleased in you. You, as a believer, have been made new. You've been made right with God. Not by trusting in anything of your own doing, your own strength, because we, you, are not enough. I am not enough but by simply trusting in Christ, by resting in his righteousness, that is why the word is true when he says his kindness leads us to repentance. Not his wrath, his kindness. Oh, that he would love you and woo you and lead you to genuine repentance. What other God comes to us who is Emmanuel, God with us, leads his children in their rebellion as we were all rebels, gently wooing them, stirring their hearts to worship him, and ultimately leading them to repentance, to turn from their wicked ways and to turn to him. And in that, he says, my beloved son, I leave us, I leave us with this. There's some questions that we've got to wrestle with. Children, adults, all questions we have to wrestle with. What do you need to repent of this morning? I can't answer that for you. I have a hard enough time answering that for me. 
What do you need to repent of, to turn from and turn to God? Maybe it's turn from my pride and self-righteousness and, and how I serve justifies me and what I do defines me and finally just fall on your knees and say, no, Christ's righteousness defines me. I'm made new in him. What's keeping you from turning away from sin in yourself and turning to the gospel? Or Christian, maybe you're here this morning. What's keeping you from following through with baptism? I love our baptism celebrations. Because two weeks before that, or five weeks before baptisms, we have membership class, and a week after membership class, we have baptism class, and it's a beautiful opportunity to sit with people and hear their stories, to wrestle with why they haven't been baptized, or they just gave their life to Jesus, and they're ready to be baptized, but they're nervous. Those are all conversations that don't have to wait until spring or fall. I would love to have that conversation with you. Pastor Lucas, Pastor Rick, any of us, your community group leader would love to have that conversation with you. Hey, what's, what's keeping you from being baptized? Initiate that conversation. It's a beautiful example that Christ has set for us. It's a bold proclamation of his goodness poured out on your life. What's keeping you from turning to God in a way that proclaims and boasts the name of Jesus and not yourself? A lot of tough questions there. A lot of things that you need to wrestle with the day after Christmas you're here at church, you're just going maybe through the rhythms, whatever it is, you have an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. All across our world right now, people are suffering when they mention the name of Christ. They're not able to gather, and we have the privilege to gather in a beautiful building with brothers and sisters the day after Christmas, celebrating with family, whatever this last week looked like, you have a chance to respond to the Word of God this morning. And God is, is drawing you. He's wooing you into his presence. My prayer all week is that the Holy Spirit, and I've wrestled with this all week, that the Holy Spirit would, would just convict and cause us to repent, that our children would hear this message, that it wouldn't be a confusing message, that they would at least ask questions. Two of my own children. Who are you praying for? What do you need to repent of? Because I tell you this, a repentant heart runs to God and not away from Him. So let's run to Him right now as we respond. Let's pray. Father, I'm in awe of just how powerful you are. This book, your word, thousands of years, generation after generation, continues to convict and call people to repentance. The prophecies fulfilled, Lord John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. This bold proclamation of him heralding the good news. Repent, be baptized, be saved. 
It's the same message our world needs. It's the same message our, our church needs. It's the same message we never grow out of. As believers, we should be quick to repent because we have tasted your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And Lord, so many times we're, we're so fearful of how you're going to respond. The consequences of sin or the consequences of, of, of confessing things to our spouse and what might come with that. God, is out of your kindness that leads us to repentance. And Spirit, I pray that it would be no different this morning your kindness would move in and amongst the quiet whispers of our children. You would draw their eyes to your, your beauty. That as our children are wrestling with things, Lord, that we wouldn't be scared to jump in those conversations with them. That's what you've You've called us to, to do that, and you've equipped us with your Holy Spirit. What beautiful adventure it is that we, Father, can take part in drawing and bringing our children to the feet of the cross. Stir in their hearts this morning. Stir in, in our hearts. Any sin that we're wrestling with. Just what, what this Sunday signifies is the last Sunday of the year. I'm not dig on all the resolutions and all of the, the things that come with that. I think it's great to set goals, but God, I can't think of a better time to close out a year than with a heart of repentance. Focused on your word and on your mercy and grace and your kindness to us, that we would turn, we would turn from our former ways of doing things, turn from the entrapment, entanglement of sin, of committing treason against you and turn to your goodness and your grace and your mercy and experience that this morning. Please, Lord. This wouldn't just be a normal time where we sing three songs and we go be a time where we sit with our, our children, sit with our spouse. Maybe we're by ourselves this morning. We just sit in your presence. We rest the work and your righteousness. Our identity would be in you. Father, and then as Christians, I think about what this meant for Jesus as he was baptized and raised, immersed and raised in his ministry, took off one verse later in chapter 4. Lord, we are a sent people. What message are we sharing with the world? What filter do we try to put on ourselves to make things look better? Today, Father, we just sit with you. Can we just sit with you and, and your spirit? Lift our eyes, our weary eyes. And as a Christian, hear my beloved child. And we rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.